Well, good morning, church. Uh, church here in the building, church joining us online. We are united in ways that uh, that are really remarkable, given the world that we live in. It is one of the great treasures of the church uh, that we don't claim any separation according to boundaries of geography, nation, race, ethnicity. How much the world needs that today. This morning we're launching a new series that is intended to guide us through Lent, that series, uh, that day of preparation, those weeks stretching up to Easter. The word Lent itself is, well, if you're French-speaking, you hear it and you think, slow. And maybe for some of you, that's correct. You need to slow down a little bit. Make these next 40 days about the care and nourishment of building of your own soul. But for others, maybe honestly, you need to speed up a little bit. You need to be engaged in some things that really matter. The word Lent actually doesn't mean slow. It's not a French word at all. It's a Latin word, and it means 40. And that's where we get the 40 days. These are the roughly six weeks that lead us into the celebration of Easter, a celebration of resurrection and of new life. And I I love this time of year. I think I love it more than Christmas. It prompts people to think about new beginnings in their life, in the life of their family, in the life of their neighbors and their neighborhoods. Uh, the, the new commitment that might be forming in their relationships with God and with other people. So I, I thought I would start this series with a question, and it's a question about change. I, I want you to think with me about change. In particular, I'd love for you to think about a habit. Uh, can I say maybe a bad habit? Think about a bad habit, about a rut that you've been stuck in for a long time, a bad attitude, a bad impulse, a lack of discipline. Then let me ask you this question. How many of you would like to change at least one thing about the person sitting next to you? (laughs) Hands up. One thing. Oh, you cowards. (laughs) One thing about the person sitting there. No. Do you think it can happen? Can change really happen? How much change do you think you are capable of? There's a fascinating book written by a researcher named Carol Dweck. This came out actually more than 10 years ago. She is interested in researching how it is that people handle limitations and obstacles and failures and particularly how they handle change. She took a group of 10-year-olds and she gave them math problems that that were increasing in difficulty. And of course, most students, when they began to hit failure, when they couldn't solve the problems, they became discouraged, they got depressed. But there were a few among the group that had a very different attitude. One kid, she said, rubbed his hands together and kind of smacked his lips and said, I love a challenge. And another, a 10-year-old, get this, 10 years old, failing at a puzzle, said, you know, I was hoping this would be informative. 10 years old. Dweck said what she realized with these kids is not only this small group, not only were they not discouraged by failure, but they didn't actually think that they were failing. They thought that they were learning. And she came to the conclusion that human beings really have 
these different mindsets about life. In fact, that human beings really have two primary mindsets. One of them, one of them I'm going to call a closed mindset. A little bit different language than what she uses, but a closed mindset. And the idea of a closed mindset is that your life is kind of like this jar. And into your life are poured a series of, let's call them abilities, talents, experiences, and this is you. And into the jar they go. And what's in there, that's it. And you, you have it. You know, and this is what it is all about. I have a certain amount of intelligence and giftedness and athleticism and attractiveness, but my life is in this jar. And how much of it I have, talent, ability, everything, it's kind of fixed. It all gets poured into there and it all kind of stays there. And my job, in fact, is to wow everybody with what's in my jar. Just look at it. Just listen to it rattle around in there so that you look at me and say, boy, he's really got it. He's got it, whatever it is. And then when I think about my life, when challenges come and something is taken from me, an ability, a capacity, something in my life, I'm actually going to, I'm going to resent it I'm going to avoid everything possible in the area of challenge that might rob me of it because I've only got so much. And I'll try to arrange my life so that I have as much success as possible and as little failure because I can't afford to lose anything that's in the jar. I can't, I can't deal with the fact that some people might think, well, he hasn't really got it or he sure has a whole lot less of it than other people around him. You see this really early on, you know, kids in school. I, I watch this sometimes with my own kids. Uh, you know, I didn't really study for that test, they say. <laughs> and and we, we say that. Why do we say that? I mean, maybe it's true. But it also allows us an out. So that if we don't do well in the test, we're able to say, well, it's because I didn't study for it. It's not because I don't have it. It's because I didn't study. But hey... If I didn't study and I got a good grade after all, then look how much of it I must really have. You sort of understand that idea of a closed mindset. And the situation gets a whole lot worse because we spend a lot of time in our lives comparing jars. Let's see, how big is yours compared to mine? How many balls are stuffed in yours compared to mine? And then I begin to think, is this really all there is of me? I mean, is that it? Uh, I'm not that smart. I'm not that pretty. I'm certainly not that athletic. I'm not that strong. This is just, that's it. Uh, that's my life in this jar. And I have to somehow place my jar next to your enormous jars, and it just makes me feel about this big. That's the closed mindset. And there are a lot of people who go through life that way. And if you go through life that way, there is just constant fear and pressure in order to be able to prove yourself, to show that I've got it, and it is enough. Now, 
Carol Dweck went on to say there's another way of going through life. And that's what you might call a growth mindset. Does anybody know what, what this is? What is that? A bonsai, a bonsai tree. Uh, I, I brought a few of them this morning so you could look at them. A bonsai tree is, is a living thing, a growing thing. If you've kept bonsai, you know that, that you have to stay on top of them because they're always growing. You have to carefully manicure these things. If you leave them alone for even a couple of weeks, there'll be enormous shoots that are popping out of here and suddenly this bonsai cherry tree begins to look like a real cherry tree because it's always growing. Or this little bonsai juniper begins to look like the hedge in front of your house. The idea, though, is that they're constantly growing. And when you have a growth mindset, then the idea is not, this is what I have, this is all that I have, and I must have it. It's more like, well, you're a seed that's being planted And growth is always a possibility. And then there's the pruning and the shaping of what's going on in your life. That what matters most about you is not just your raw ability, the it that fits in the jar, but it's the ability to embrace growth and challenge and change. And the goal is not to look smarter or better or brighter than other people. The goal is to grow beyond where you are today. And if that's the case, then then failure becomes something indispensable. It, it gives you something to learn. Notice one other thing too. A jar has a lid on it. It kind of caps it. doesn't allow anything else in. A plant has roots. You can see the root ball sort of peeking up around here. A plant has Roots that dig down into a foundation that provides growth. Life is about growth. I want this season, the season of Lent, to be about growth. And and I want to begin to shift our mindset out of this realm, the closed mindset, and into this realm. And we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at what life could be if it taps in, if it's rooted in the foundation of the life, the teaching, the example, and the power of Jesus. Life is not confined to a jar. Specifically, we're going to look at the relationship Jesus had with his father. We're going to do that today. We're going to look at the relationships, the community that Jesus had with his friends. We're going to look at Jesus and his mission. We're going to look at Jesus and his movement. And then, just as we come to celebrate baptism and and crucifixion and resurrection, I mean, really the pinnacle of our faith, we're going to look at Jesus and the question that really haunts the human race. My hope is that by the end of the series, that you will know something about or that you will admire or understand or love Jesus in a way that you haven't yet before, because there is no cap on that jar. So I'm going to begin today with uh, well something that we talked about a little bit four months ago, at the beginning of the Christmas season, our walk into, into Christmas, we dealt with the doctrine of the incarnation. Does anybody remember that word, kind of a heady word, incarnation? Jesus' impact on humanity was so great 
that for decades, in fact, for centuries after, people were still wrestling with the question, who is this man? What just happened in our world with the birth, the incarnation of Jesus? In fact, if you look through the pages of history, you will discover that there is no one who has been quite the conundrum to the human race that Jesus has been. On the one hand, people looked at his life and said, this man, Jesus, he was not like the rest of us. He was totally unique. And they would list out all the ways that he was unique. And one thing, and we're going to spend some time here today, is that he had an utterly unique relationship with God. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll find these people, Abraham and, and Jacob and Moses and Esther and Elijah, they all had extraordinary encounters with God the Father. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you find somebody who spoke to God with the confidence and the familiarity and the intimacy with God that Jesus had. You see this all the time. He had a unique relationship with God the Father. Look at these words from Mark chapter 14. Jesus would would address God, and this is the first time that we have of this, this form of tender, intimate address. He would pray to God using the Aramaic word Abba. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. There's a great scholar of the New Testament who said, there is no instance of the use of the word Abba as a way of addressing God in all of the extensive prayer literature of Judaism. There is no record of anybody doing that before Jesus. His relationship was unique. It culminated in those words that Jen read for us. I and the Father are one. Not just a unique relationship, Jesus had a unique ministry. Other people have had ministries, but Jesus said about his ministry, I have come that they may have life. This is John chapter 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus said that remarkably the kingdom of God was now present and available, and it was here on earth because he was here. He was present on earth. Nobody's ever said stuff like that before. He had a unique ministry. Here's a third thing. He made unique claims. He said to people one day before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And that that little phrase, I am, that was like a tripwire for the people who heard him say that. That was the great title of, the great name of God himself, Yahweh. And here Jesus applying it to himself before Abraham was even born. I am, I was, I always will be using the word that that God himself uses to describe him. I am. And you can imagine he got in a lot of trouble for saying it. Here's a fourth thing. He, He had a unique life. The book of Hebrews says that he has been tempted in every way, Hebrews 4, in every way, just as we are, and yet he was without sin. He never sinned. Can you say that about anyone else? Anyone in history? Anyone in the present? A fifth thing, he died a unique death. 
Paul says, for that which I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died. Why? For our sins. Everybody dies. But Christ died for our sins. But then here's the sixth thing. That he uniquely refused to stay dead. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And then people looked at his life and they asked themselves, well, how many other human beings are there in the history of the human race who had this unique knowledge of God the Father, who claimed that they brought the kingdom of heaven here onto earth in person, who claimed to pre-exist even Abraham himself, who never sinned, not even once, who died for the sins of the world and who was raised again and in the wake of his resurrection launched a worldwide movement that has stretched on now for 20 centuries. Only Jesus. And so they were drawn to this staggering conclusion about Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that this humble Nazarene rabbi was in fact God in flesh. But you know what? That's only half the story. You remember the other half of the story of incarnation was that Jesus wasn't like us at all, but in fact, he was also just like us. I mean, that's the beauty, the, the paradox, the, just the wonder of the incarnation. And that part is just as important. Let me say a word about that in our day. We'll often hear people say, especially in the church, that they, or especially outside the church, that they believe yet Jesus existed. He was probably a good man, good teacher, good example, but not divine. The very first heresy that the church faced was not a heresy that, divide, that defied the divinity of Jesus. They saw that clearly. No sin died for the sins of the world, raised from the dead. There's nobody, nobody like him. The first heresy the church faced denied the humanity of Jesus. It was called docetism, if you're curious. A Greek word, dokein, which just means to seem like. That, that Jesus only seemed like he was human. It was, in fact, God roaming around on earth, just kind of wearing a human disguise. And against that, the writers of the New Testament insisted that, that Jesus was not just God walking around in disguise, that he was human in every way that we are. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus became like his brothers and his sisters in every possible way. If you read the Bible, read the Gospels, it talks about Jesus being hungry and thirsty and tired. It talks about him going through seasons of grief, times when he was troubled or angry or in pain. It says that he grew just like we grow. It says that he bled like we bleed. And of course, it says that he died in the same way that we too will die. And we're going to think about this a little bit today. Because a lot of times people don't think about this side of Jesus. And, and sometimes our songs, our hymns mislead us into a lopsided understanding of Jesus, landing too much on one side or the other. Hey, we just came out of Christmas. There's an old Christmas carol. Lots of you know it, Away in a Manger. You know this line. Sing it with me. The cattle are lowing, the poor babe 
awakes the little Lord Jesus. What? What? What baby? What baby in the history of the world? No crying he makes. Has anybody ever met a non-crying baby? Actually, there's one in the in the sanctuary today. I have not heard a peep out of Asher since he arrived, but there he is. Welcome, Asher, to MCBC. This is Daniel's son, Daniel and Jade. But the one thing that we know about Jesus from the pages of the Bible is that, yeah, he did cry. He wept when his friend Lazarus died. He cried when he looked at the city of Jerusalem over all of those people that he loved so much who were so confused and suffering. The New Testament is adamant about the humanity of Jesus, so much so that John actually writes, this is in 2 John chapter two, chapter 1, verse 7. It says there are many deceivers, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And they've gone out into the world. And he says that the person who doesn't believe that he came in flesh is guilty of a kind of deception, false teaching. Jesus came, the Bible insists, in the flesh. He was a real person like us. And it leads to this question. Maybe it's an obvious question, I don't know. But if if Jesus, in Jesus, God really became human. And if in Jesus, he was saying, I'm not going to use my divinity, my power, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. I'm not going to use these things as a shield to protect myself from suffering hardship. But for the sake of humanity, I'm going to enter into the human race with all the human limitations and weaknesses and temptations that I'm going to play the game with both hands tied behind my back. If that's the case, then how did Jesus still do the remarkable things that Jesus did? And the answer I want to suggest to you The answer, folks, that we are going to walk with through this season is that he did it through a complete and utter moment-by-moment dependence and surrender to the presence of God in a way that had no parallels. We're told, those of you who just went through baptism class, you remember this beautiful episode. We're told that at the moment of Jesus' baptism, when he came up out of the waters, the heavens themselves opened, and the the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested upon him. Matthew, the Gospel writer, records that. Mark actually says that the, the Spirit of God landed in him that it went into him to emphasize how the Spirit of God is now dwelling inside of living in Jesus. And when the Bible says things like that, the heavens themselves open, you understand this isn't just special effects. This is a physical picture of a spiritual reality that somehow up there is now coming down here that the presence and intimacy and the power of God the Father is invading and is available, fully available to this man, Jesus. How is it available? Through this one thing, through his utter dependence on the Spirit of God. The New Testament says Jesus became fully human, but it says again and again and again 
that in his human life he was led by the Spirit. He was anointed for his ministry by the Spirit. He operated in the power of the Spirit. We're told that he rejoiced full of joy through the Holy Spirit, that he offered his death as a sacrifice to God through the eternal Spirit. Romans 8, Paul says it was the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. The point is this, that Jesus was supremely the man of the Spirit. The man of the Spirit. Not only did he not use his divinity for his own, own, own advantage, he emptied himself of that. He became really holy, fully human, depended not on his own strength or his own power, but on the presence and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And now comes this stupendous fact. If Jesus became fully human, which he did, and if Jesus lived in such a way that he was always dependent on the eternal presence of God, the Holy Spirit, which he was, and if the same Spirit that lived in Jesus is now available to you and I here today, then the lid is off. God has blown the lid off so that what's up there comes down here. And we're no longer these crude jars. We are living, growing, spiritually gifted and anointed beings. That's an incredible thing. And let me suggest to you that God, God's desire this season leading up to Easter for you, for me, for our church is to burst out of the limitations that have been holding us back, especially this idea that that to be human means that somehow we have to live with the temptation of depending only on ourselves. That we have to be so strong in ourselves. I got it. The truth is, I don't got it. And neither do you. In fact, let's do that. Uh, turn to the person closest to you and, and say this to them. This is going to be such an encouragement. Say, brother or sister, you don't got it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's hardly an encouragement. But let's make it worse. Now turn to them and say, not only do you not got it, you lost it. Uh, but here's the truth. God has it. He always has. And his desire is to give it and to share it. Listen to these words, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. I saw them on the screen. Let's bring them back there. Romans eight eleven. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, what spirit? The same spirit who raised Christ from the dead. That spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. And he lives in you. I, I, love, I love the paraphrase that Eugene Peterson gives of the next phrase. Listen to the paraphrase in verse 12. He says, with his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. There's nothing in it for us. Nothing at all. 
telling you. I'm telling you this because we live in a place and in a time that will tempt you. That the only life you have is the do-it-yourself life. But it's not. In fact, that's the great barrier that God wants us to press through. The New Testament wants us to know just how radically Jesus became like us so that we can understand just how radically we can become like Jesus. And I'll tell you something that will really blow your mind when you think about your own life. Jesus is called the last man, meaning he is the last of that sinful line of sinful humanity. That somehow, in a sacred mystery that we can hardly get our heads around, in a wonder of God's love and grace, he entered into sin for us. And he offered forgiveness to us. He's called the last man as a way of saying that whole chapter is done. And then he is called the second Adam. Back into the garden. New creation. A season of growth. An environment of growth. The new Adam. And in the new Adam, sin and death come to an end. And now in Jesus... We're invited to become as Adam was meant to be. The Imago Dei, the image bearers of God, growing day by day in the likeness of the one who made us. Let, let's get personal for just a moment and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. I want you to think back, if you will, over the past couple of years. I mean, if in fact this is the beginning of a new day for us, reopening I want you to think back over the past couple of years. Did did you have a good couple of years? <laughs> kind of a hard question, isn't it? Think about the different entities that you interact with. Did our government have a good couple of years? How about our businesses? Our families? Our churches? Did the Raptors have a good couple of years? How about you? I mean, did you have a good couple of years? More importantly, what is your goal to have a good year in 2022? When we think about a good year, humanly speaking, what we're usually meaning is that we're hoping that good stuff happens to us. Career promotions, a raise, a cut of the price at the pumps would be good. Better health, a better job. But really, a year is nothing more than a series of moments. And so a good year is nothing more than a series of good moments strung together. What makes a moment good? What could make a moment great? The closed mindset answer is only what's trapped in the jar. The growth mindset answer is a moment is great when I get to do it with God. When God, the source of all grace and growth, is present, any moment can be a great moment. When I'm with God and, and I experience his presence right here in this moment, I hope you feel that right here in this moment, his joy, his mercy. That's the good life. That's why we're going to devote ourselves to learning more about it and clinging to it over the next six weeks. And I'll tell you, My main goal for us this season 
is to be able to spend more moments with him where we're fully aware of his presence, when we're surrendered to him than we have before. I want this to be a season of the Spirit. And I'll be praying for that every day for me and for you. I guess in the closing moment of this message, I I want you to think about how Jesus learned to do that in his life. Now the gospel says that that Jesus, this is Luke two fifty two, that Jesus grew in all the same ways that we grow. It says Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and other people. It means he grew up physically. He grew up intellectually. He grew up relationally. And he grew up spiritually. I pray that's the case for you. In describing the early days of Jesus, one of the few glimpses we have into his childhood is in Luke 4, where it says that there was Jesus, Luke four sixteen on the Sabbath day. Where? In the synagogue. Why? It was his custom. In other words, he developed very early on customs and rhythms and practices in his life that opened himself up to the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's what we're doing now. If you read further in his life, you'll, you'll see how many times in his ministry he, he responds to a question by saying, it is written. And he goes on to quote scripture. How did Jesus know what the scripture said? The same way you and I do. He didn't have it all downloaded like some sort of magic app. He slowly and patiently immersed himself into the words of God until they became like second nature. I pray for us in this season, that's the case. We grow spiritually, that we grow relationally, that we grow intellectually, that we do so through healthy rhythms of the Spirit immersed in the Word of God. You know, it's not about education. Uh, Education can be a wonderful thing, but sometimes it's one of those things that is more trapped in the jar than released in the garden. There's something about relying on our smarts, on on playing the smart card, on, on wanting to be the smartest person in the room that can kind of be a disease. And the reason I know that is because I have it. I've been infected with it for a long time. It can lead to arrogance and self-sufficiency and pride. I heard this statement just this week. It said, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'd love everybody to do that. Would you, would you just say that with me? I'm not the smartest person in the room. Say that. I'm not the smartest person. Let's try that again. Let's say it really loud. I am not the smartest person in the room. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully you said that with some conviction. And that's true of everybody here except one person who, as it turns out, is the smartest person. And you need to go find a smarter church. But for the rest of us, this is not going to be a six-week journey just about knowledge. This is about intimacy. About clinging to Jesus and praying for the presence of the Holy Spirit in a way that allows us to grow. I think that's what the Bible means when it talks about wisdom. 
Not knowledge, wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to everyone without finding fault. What if every problem, every challenge, everything that you confront this season, every time you're not sure what to do, instead of just relying on your own smarts, what's trapped in the jar, you said, God, would you guide me through this? I need wisdom. What if you said, this year, I'm going to immerse myself more and more in the book that contains your word, the sacred artifact, the the word of God, the scriptures? What if I'm going to be shaped by that more than any other single source? What if this becomes, for each of us, the season of the Spirit? What if this season we all worked, however large or small, to be able to cultivate more of the presence of God in us. <laughs> you know, the earliest depictions of Jesus that we have, <laughs> you know how in, in movies about Jesus, we always cast a stunningly attractive actor with bright eyes and usually an engaging British accent because for us, British just sounds smart. (laughs) Crazy Brits. But uh, the earliest description we have of Jesus comes from a man named Celsus. And it says that Jesus was short and unattractive. That somehow everything that God accomplished in him wasn't because of the jar. Isaiah 53 described him that way, said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. But what we know is that he burst out of the bonds of the normal, out of normal human limitations. And it's not because he walked around like some Hercules. It's because the Spirit of God was so profoundly at work in him. I'm going to pray that's the case for us. Next week we're going to take a glimpse at how Jesus wants to use the Spirit at work in you in building bridges, in relationships, in community. But right now, I'd like to take a moment just to open yourselves up. Will you do that with me to the presence of the Spirit? In a few minutes, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. and Pastor Nathan is going to lead us into the presence of God in that way. And then we'll sing. But then I would love to meet you down here, right at the front of the room, for prayer. The Bible talks about laying hands on somebody and praying that the Spirit of God would be released in their person's life. If you would like to do that as we launch into this season together, we're going to spread ourselves across the front and we would love to be able to pray for you. Just lay our hands on you and ask that the Spirit of God would be released in your life. We'll celebrate communion. We'll sing. And then for those of you who would like, we're going to invite you to come forward and allow us to pray for you. But before we do that, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes now. Just to have a word of prayer as you bow your head. You can ask the Holy Spirit 
to make this season one of the greatest adventures in God dependence in your life. So we pray, Heavenly Father, would you look out over all of these people, all of us, jars filled with so much good stuff. And yet, Lord, would you free us, free us, God, from a fatal dependency on ourselves, a captivity to only what's trapped in the jar. Would you help us, like Jesus, to empty ourselves, to humble ourselves, and then, God, to burst out of the bounds of human limitation and, God, actually to start living in the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.